You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 480 of this podcast. Today is Monday, October 10th, 2022. And in this episode, we're going to talk about Christian universalism and whether hell is eternal conscious torment. And before we get into it, let me just say a couple of things by way of introduction. One, there's a lot going on in the world. And I should like to talk about some current events items, but I'm going to hold off in this episode because I've got a lot of material to cover, a lot of ground to cover, a lot of material to go through with you. And I want to conserve as much time as possible in this episode for the main subject. Uh, There's some things personally that we've got cooking, and I'll give you some updates here in some future episodes on a more personal level, but for this episode, I want to focus on hell and what do we make of it and what does the Bible say about it? That's really what we should make of it, but sometimes what we read in the scriptures is hard to understand. Sometimes what we read about heaven and hell and man and God and where we come from and where we're going and what actually is going on? How do we explain what we see around us, what we recognize in ourselves and in one another? Sometimes these things in God's word are hard to understand. Sometimes there are mysteries that need to be pursued and sought out and understood and meditated on and discussed back and forth. And that applies to the afterlife if it applies to any subject. This whole idea that some people are bound for heaven, others are bound for hell, that there is a righteous God who will judge all mankind. And as Christians hold, in Christ, our sins are not counted against us, but for Christ, our sins are counted against us. These things are weighty, they're heavy, they are important. You don't get much more practical in terms of your theology than eternal destinations. Whether you're going to heaven, whether you're going to hell, it's a big deal. It's very, very important. And specifically with regards to how we're going to be considering hell in light of the scriptures in this episode, I'll give you the backstory first, and then we'll delve into the material. So, I've been working as a systems integrator, contract, embedded contractor for Chevron for the past year, and it's been a great pleasure to work with the professional, competent, courteous people on the systems team in the automation department in Greeley, Colorado for Chevron for the past year. It's been just a answer to prayer and a huge blessing, and I consider myself very privileged in a good way. Privileges are not a bad thing. I'm not going to apologize. I'm going to give thanks to the Lord Almighty for the privilege of having worked 
for Chevron, with Chevron, and especially of all people I would like to honor having worked with the past year, a big thank you to Alex Cassetta for being a friend, a brother in Christ, as I reckon him, as I regard him, even if we disagree on some political, philosophical, and theological points, I have been very encouraged over the past year to have another brother in Christ to talk these things over with and to be having fellowship with and to have a good testimony with. And I thank God that we've had the opportunity to get to know one another at work and outside of work. But that isn't to say that if we come across a theological disagreement, I paper over it because we're friends. I wouldn't want him to do that. I'm not going to do that. And actually, I think we can have as good a testimony or better uh, in having these discussions about our theological differences, our philosophical differences, our political differences out loud uh, as Christians. If we are claiming to be in Christ and we can discuss these things in a way that is exemplary, that is part of our being salt that has not lost its savor. What American society at this point in history, at this moment and in this time is so sorely lacking is a capacity to dialogue and debate back and forth and to argue in the best sense, to give an argument for why it is that we believe what we believe, to ask questions, to cross-examine, to say, as some do, that the first to state his case seems correct until the other comes and examines him, is fine as well as it goes. But we don't take that to mean, of course, that no one should be cross-examined. What we mean, or what we should mean, why it's in Proverbs, is that it is wise to reserve judgment until the first to state his case has been cross-examined. And after you have heard all sides in a debate, then you weigh the evidence, you weigh the arguments, you try to think clearly about what is true, what is beautiful, what is good in this or that position. And maybe it's not going to all be found in one position. And maybe ultimately you just won't know because we're told in the scriptures. That's a very biblical conclusion to come to that we know in part We prophesy in part. We see now through a glass dimly. We do not know even as we are fully known. And yet, as Dr. Gary Brashears points out in his Intro to Systematic Theology lecture as part of the Guide to Christian Theology, which we had our first session of on Friday night, and it was great. It was really, really good discussion, great fellowship, really great material to work through from Dr. Gary Brashears and biblicaltraining.org. As Gary Brashears points out, in Deuteronomy 29.29, we are told explicitly that the secret things belong to God. That is, whatever God's not told us, he didn't need to tell us. He was under no obligation to tell us or explain to us. They're his. He's got that. He knows. (laughs) The things which he has made known are not just for us. They're also for our children. And so... That's part of what I'm doing here with the podcast. That's part of what we're trying to do as Christians when we meet together and we study God's word and we sit under the teaching of faithful men who preach sermons or lead 
small groups or teach Sunday school or help out with youth group or fill in the blank, what have you. We are trying to determine what has been given to us, what has been made known that we should derive a benefit, that we should be blessed by it. And it's been the case for 2,000 years that Christians do not always agree and also that Christians disagreeing or having partial knowledge, partial understanding, that is not an impediment to the truth being an actual thing that exists, that can be known in some measure. Partial knowledge is still knowledge. And that's all we have to work with. If we give up on partial knowledge, incomplete knowledge, incomplete understandings, if we give up on that because we do not yet know fully, even as we are fully known, well then, I would say we have committed ourselves to a kind of death. And we ought not to. Life is a beautiful gift, and part of life is engaging God's creation, God's revealed truth with our minds. And not just in isolation, not just by our lonesomes, but together with his people. And even with an audience of those who are not his people, so that he gets glory from that. Let your light so shine before all men, Jesus says, that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And yet, good works must be predicated on truth. And so we have to know what is true. We have to be able to discern what the will of God is in order to know what good works we should walk in. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through several passages which Alex graciously answered uh, my question with. And my question was regarding his view on hell or of hell, where does he look in the scriptures to find that stated? In other words, where is it written that this view is uh, even just an option? It's definitely not an option that I take, but as he says in the early church, in the first few centuries of church history, several views on hell were common and not everyone held to eternal conscious torment. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody was correct because where there is a mutually exclusive claim being made, A, B, and C. They can't all three be correct. One of them must be correct because the features contradict the others, the law of non-contradiction. If we're going to employ reason and logic, which we are given minds to do, not for no reason, but to use reason, we have to say not everybody was correct. And yet, if the early church had a broad toleration for there being some debate, some discussion of these things with regards to hell. Well then, what happened? Why is that not the case? Why, in my experience, is only eternal conscious torment mentioned as the correct doctrine with regards to hell? Some other options include, and I was introduced to this before, annihilationism, which is to say that those who are not in Christ are destroyed really and truly. They are annihilated. They cease to exist. They are burned up, mind, body, soul. All of them is destroyed. Then there is also Alex's view, 
which is a kind of, and if there's a better term for it, someone please let me know. It's a kind of Christian universalism. It's not the same as the New Age universalism, which says that all paths lead to God, not per se. And even though Alex says he does not believe that hell is purgatory, I still am going to need to study and ponder and cross-examine further to see how that's the case, because it does seem as though his view of hell is that hell is purgatory. As I understand purgatory and as I understand hell, by contrast to my view of hell and the broad consensus in our day regarding hell, his view of hell does seem to be that it's more purgatory than an actual hell. But I asked him what passages support your view, and he gave me several. So we're going to go through those. We're going to work through them, and I'll unpack in the context of those passages why I don't think they are saying what he thinks they're saying. Inconceivable. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. We'll also go through a few passages at the end that come to my mind with regards to the subject, which I think in order to have a sound biblical hermeneutic, we need to interpret the passages which Alex is familiar with. Uh, In light of, these all have to coincide with one another. We have to integrate all of them into our worldview and even our view of the afterlife. But first off, let's jump in from the top with Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And I quote, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, I've just read this, and of course, this is speaking of Christ. And before we tackle Christian universalism, let me point out that a very common and ancient heresy is to take some other things that are said in this passage and misconstrue them. And so we know that it is possible to misconstrue. It must be, must be possible to misconstrue the semantic range of a certain word or phrase to mean something that it does not mean. For instance, firstborn of all creation. There's an ancient heresy that we're not going to delve into for the sake of time in this episode. We'll get to it in the future. But there's an ancient heresy that says that Jesus is a created being. That's not correct. And that's not what firstborn means in context here. Not just the context of the passage, but the context of the scriptures and the context 
of the culture of Colossae, where the church is being written this letter in. The firstborn of creation is talking about a positional distinction, like the oldest son in a family being authoritative. It's not talking literal created being in the sense that there was a time where Jesus didn't exist. No, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-eternal. They are co-equal. They are all God, fully God. No less God, no more God, one than the other, distinct and yet not separate, not made up of parts. And there's a mystery to it, which God is pleased for us to know is a mystery. (laughs) We know more than nothing, but less than everything when we hold to a Trinitarian view of God. And yet that is for at least 1500 years, what has been regarded as true Christianity. And yet here in the context of our conversation for the purposes of our conversation about hell, we see verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I understand Alex to be saying, this must be totally and completely fulfilled by God reconciling everyone. That is, not just those who believe in Christ, but even those who do not believe. Now, my question or questions would be, what does the word reconcile mean in the context of all things here? Reconcile in English has several potential meanings. One of them, which we are most familiar with, has to do with restoring a relationship. And if that's what this means, if it means reconciling man, irrespective his belief in Christ, if it means that, well then, to Alex's point, he maybe has some justification for believing what he does about universalism or subscribing to universalism. And yet, there are other meanings of reconcile, even in the English. Now, reconcile, as a word, comes from two Latin parts, one being re, which means back, the other being conciliare, which means bring together. So in Latin, together, it would be reconciliare. But that just means to bring back together. That's what it means. In English... According to Oxford languages, it can mean to restore friendly relations between, which is certainly how my friend Alex is taking it to mean. It also can cause to coexist in harmony, make our show to be compatible. It also can make one account consistent with another, especially by allowing for transactions begun, but not yet completed. It also can settle a disagreement It also can make someone accept a disagreeable or unwelcome thing. So if you were reconciled to the idea of someone helping you that gets on your nerves, for instance, you've kind of thrown in the towel. You've just accepted that 
they are going to help you and you're just going to have to get over it. But consider the semantic range here of the word reconcile. For instance, to settle a disagreement. Can that not be a potential help as we read this passage in Colossians? That all things are being reconciled to Christ. Through Christ, he is reconciling all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I think so. Also, too, consider that all things is not a common way that we refer to people. All things in context here seems really, truly to be talking about things. That is the impersonal part of the general creation of which mankind is only a part and portion, albeit a preeminent one. So all eagles are birds. Not all birds are eagles. So all of mankind is part of God's creation, but not all of creation is mankind. So there's a distinction here where we have to separate out the reading of all things, even where you see some very personal related things like thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. You could say, well, it's debatable. And I would say, sure, in this passage, if we're only reading this passage, but the same goes for Christ being referred to as the firstborn of all creation. It's debatable if all you're looking at is this passage, but if you're bringing in other scripture to interpret scripture, which is hermeneutics 101, not so much. It's not quite as unclear as it will be if all you're reading is verse 20 in Colossians chapter 1. So all things being reconciled may not mean quite what the universalist position would assume. Moving on, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 19, working our way down. We might as well work all the way down to verse 58. Now I would remind you, Paul writes, brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, let's stop already. We're not even out of that first verse. Why would we see passages like this talking about believing in vain and if we hold fast with regards to being saved, if all will be saved in a sense? Now, I anticipate a potential answer. You're still being saved from a temporary hell if it is temporary. Okay, but there's no mention of it being a temporary hell in this passage and I think it's neither here nor there, except the if and the conditional does not lend itself to saying, well, you know, I, everybody's going to make it. Everybody's going to be let in. No, no. If, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. But moving on, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, let's stop again, because this passage, this verse, verse 22, 1 Corinthians 15, is taken to mean that all being made alive is 
a promise of universalism in a sense, as I understand it, unless I'm not hearing my friend Alex correctly. And I trust he'll correct me uh, if I'm misinterpreting. I apologize in advance if I am, but regardless, let me just make very clear all being made alive and resurrected in Christ can mean two things more readily than universalism. One, this is talking about all being raised from the dead, whether to eternal life in the new creation or to eternal conscious torment in hell. It's not eternal conscious torment unless you are conscious. You can't be conscious if you're not raised for the day of judgment. And we'll get into more on what that day of judgment actually looks like towards the very end, one passage that we need to take a look at and bring into our consideration of these things. But for right now, let's just make very clear, on the day of judgment, all must be resurrected to stand trial, whether or not one subscribes to my friend's view of a kind of Christian universalism or my view, which is eternal conscious torment. Also, too, another potential meaning of this is, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The all is all who are in Christ. So all who are in Christ will be made alive. But all who are in the first Adam will die. Right? That, that's all that means. It doesn't mean universalism. It means if you're in Christ, you're saved. Which, of course... Right? Of course. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, let me point out, if it's not obvious, all things being subjected to the Son should be thought of here in its martial context. So here you have the idea, the picture the concept of a conquering king. But again, let's point out the passage says all things as with Colossians. It says all things. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. We have to distinguish we have to draw a distinction between all things and all persons, in my view. All men are related to all things, sure, but we don't typically call men things. Not when we're being charitable, anyways. Remember also, the creation was not subjected to futility willingly, but it eagerly awaits the revelation of the sons of God. That is, we who are in Christ, who are the elect. Now, there may be a category confusion for the Christian universalist in supposing that subjection of creation generally implies restoration to glory 
for all men as created beings. And I think that's a mistake. If that's what's happening, I think that's a mistake to conflate things with men. Also, to misunderstand what all can mean uh, this language of subjection or reconciliation. The semantic range for subjection and for reconciliation is a little bit broader than the universalist is supposing. And by contrast, I think all things might be narrower than uh, the semantic range they are reading, uh, perhaps into the text, more than reading out of the text. Creation, and again, this is something I'll leave a little bit of room for myself to be mistaken on. Uh, Creation, to my recollection, every time we see it referred to in the scriptures, is distinct from mankind. Like the heavens and the earth are not mankind, and yet man is in relation to the heavens and the earth. Though mankind exists on the earth, for instance, and he's made from the dust of the ground, for instance, he ceases to be the dust of the ground from which God made him when the breath of life is breathed into him by the Almighty. We become personal and then we stop, except in some rare cases, all flesh is grass, for instance, which we shouldn't make too much of for the purposes of this discussion of universalism. But otherwise, it's important to separate out our categories here of creation generally and in an impersonal sense and man specifically in a personal sense. But moving on. Verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. See, what did I tell you? Even Paul says, this is a mystery. (laughs) We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Now notice here, when Paul says he's telling us a mystery, we do well to take note that the meaning may not be apparent or obvious at first glance. Why else would he tell us that this is a mystery? That's what it means for something to be mysterious, is that the meaning is not evident, it's not clear, it's not obvious at first blush. Verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, let me draw out a few things here. One, and we'll get into this again before the end, of course, but God gives us the victory through Christ. 
The passage does not say that God gives all mankind the victory in Christ, irrespective belief or unbelief in Christ. It does not say that. It says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And also, might I just point out, death is conquered in Christ being resurrected, in those who are in Christ being raised from the dead to life everlasting in Christ. Death is conquered in that. Death does not need universalism to be true in order to be conquered. That is to say, death is not still reigning and ruling if God says death is conquered by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If God says death is conquered with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all who are in Christ to victory, to life eternal, life everlasting, life without end, if that is what God says is necessary for death to be conquered, well, then that is the death of death. That is the conquest of death. That is death being swallowed up in victory and Universalism need not be true in order for God to have fulfilled his promise to conquer death. Moving on, Romans 5, 1 through 21. And I'm emphasizing here the word we and the word our and the word us. But I quote, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, why am I emphasizing the use of we and our and us, there are 24 instances by my counting, unless I missed one, that's exclusive. That is, Paul is writing to Christians in Rome. He is not writing to all Romans without exception. This is not inclusive. This is exclusive. It's not to say that you can't come with us and join us and become one of us, but it is to say if you're not one of us, if you are not a Christian, then these we statements and us statements and our statements do not apply to you, period. Continuing on, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and 
death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now, here we see a shift, right? We see a shift from Paul talking about we, our, us, to talking about all. He wasn't talking about all. He knew the word, but he wasn't using it in verses 1 through 11. Here in verses 12 through 14, he starts talking all. And these are universal statements. All men had sinned. Death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And here we see a shift again. So it started with we, us, our, then Paul transitioned to all. Now he's transitioned again to talking about many and those. Paul is talking about the grace of Christ, and he says it abounded for many, yet he does not say it either did abound for all or will abound for all. Rather, he says for many. Picking up again, verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, here we see the word all brought in again, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's disobedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, this is where it gets complicated. <laughs> My friend Alex sees life for all men, verse 18, and he says, all is the word used. Therefore, universalism, a kind of universalism, Christian universalism. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. The use of the words many and all is set up for those who were first made sinners and then righteous in the first Adam and the second Adam, respectively, clearly. Those many and all, I think... Who have been justified are the all contextually who had previously stood condemned in their sins and otherwise would be condemned in context here although it is mysterious and i can see where the debate comes from where some would be confused but i think it's confusion i don't think it's understanding 
to see the word all here is taken by them to mean all, as in all, all, all men, eventually. And I would say, no, all who will be saved is all. Not all will be saved, but all who will be saved. The hermeneutics of this and other passages has to be seen as a street or a road or a highway that is meant to be driven on in one direction when you're in a certain lane. And that's not to say, using my analogy of driving on a street or a road or a highway, it's not to say you can't drive northbound in the southbound lane. It is to say we readily recognize in context and by paying attention to the signs, we are not supposed to drive northbound in the southbound lane or southbound in the northbound lane. And there will be an accident if we try to. If there's anybody else on the roads, there's going to be an accident. Uh, So also with regards to hermeneutics here. The hermeneutics of interpreting this passage within its own context and also within the context of the totality of Scripture is the equivalent of driving the right direction in the lane that is meant to go that direction. But moving on, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, this is not the main feature, but this is a accessory to the point I was talking about earlier on the distinction between man as a created being and other impersonal things, which God has also created. We cannot suppose that what Paul means in verses four to five here is a contradiction, for instance, of what he says in verses one to two. So God creates only good things. Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. That does not contradict what we read in the earlier part of this chapter. So, for instance, what I mean is, departing from the faith is not good. Devotion to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons is not good. Insincerity is not good. Being a liar is not good. Seared consciences are not good. All of these things are not good, but they are personal. By contrast, the things created by God are good, They were created good. They are set apart by God for good uses by the word of God in prayer. Our relationship to those things by virtue of, by God's grace, are being sanctified, justified, purified, cleansed, made righteous, or working from a sinful nature that's warped, twisted, corrupted, in rebellion against God, that is where things can go off the rails. There are if statements here. There are conditional statements here with regards to how we relate to 
the good things that God has made. Moving on, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. All right, now let's stop because here we come to a thorny passage. First of all, to make my point, (laughs) not to be selfish, but our personal goodness is tied to true teaching, good doctrine, training in righteousness, toil and striving to the end of benefit in this life and the life to come is good. Work is good. It's a good thing God made. But to my friend Alex's point, Paul says God is the savior of all people, ergo universalism. He even says, especially of those who believe. What do we do with that? Consider the context. That's what I would say. Paul is writing about value and promise for the present life and the life to come. I would say our being the salt of the earth is part of God's common grace towards even those who do not believe. That is to say, our being the salt of the earth is a kind of saving of all people, especially those who believe, because what has Paul just been talking about? He's been talking about physical discipline, bodily training. So you go to the gym and you work out religiously and you're in great shape. And that's fantastic. There's a benefit to that. Also, godliness is beneficial. That's not to say godliness is beneficial, therefore, physical training, physical fitness is not useful. It's to say physical fitness is useful for this life. Godliness, that kind of working out, is good for this life and the life to come. If it's good for this life, for us to pursue godliness, and for us to receive with thanksgiving certain foods, marriage that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. There is a kind of saving, although it's temporal, it's common grace, it's not special grace. It's the fulfillment of what we read that God sends his reigns on the just and the unjust. That is a more intuitive reading of this passage than universalism would interpret. Verse 11, command and teach these things, Paul writes. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, here's my question. 
Why does Paul write this to Timothy if we all end up reconciled in the same way? Now, maybe through different paths, different strokes for different folks, some of us will get to go straight to heaven after this life is over. Others are going to have to go through hell literally. But why does Paul write this to Timothy if we all end up reconciled, if we all end up saved in the end? What are Timothy and his hearers being saved from in that case? Only a temporary conscious torment, not an eternal judgment. To deny that the hearers and Timothy are being saved from an eternal judgment or that eternal means forever and without end or to suggest that the coming age being spoken of has an end, this casts doubts in both directions on the hope that we have in Christ. And what I mean by that is if the age to come in which those who are saved have life is not without end, if it does have an end, then that would suggest not just eternal punishment comes to an end, also that eternal life comes to an end. But in that case, I don't see how we're not denying the idea of eternality entirely. I realize we don't quite comprehend it because all we know is finite. But it seems to me as though there's a denial of eternality in some sense. Certainly relative what I'm familiar with, which seems like a robust and full embrace of eternality in contrast to universalism. But moving on. Revelation 21, 1 through 27. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, John writes. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spirit of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's a lot to try and wrap our minds around. But I hazard that this could conceivably be true, and the Christian universalist would still say the second death and the lake of fire is temporary, and that these low character traits do not mark someone on the other side of being in hell before they pledge allegiance to Christ. I don't believe that's true, though. I don't believe that's true, and let me give some reasons why. For one, We see a new heaven and a new earth here. We don't see there being no more mourning, crying, pain, death in the new heavens and the new earth, as in any way requiring that hell 
ceases to exist, or that hell ceases to be a place where those things are still a feature. To say that those things are absent from the new heavens and the new earth is not to say that those things cease to exist in hell at some point. And that's important. That's, that's important for us to draw these distinctions and these compartments clearly because we have to recognize what's actually being promised and what isn't here. If we're going to say it must be, it must follow that God will do this or that to keep his promise. Wait, 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 wait. What specifically is he promising, actually? If we go too far with it, then we might even say for the one who's seated on the throne to tell John to write these things down in this context is a kind of ugliness in the new heavens and the new earth. And if we're not careful, we can smuggle in the whole premise of the challenge of the problem of evil and imply that God is not good if he punishes the wicked, if he punishes the unrighteous, knowingly, consciously, intentionally, systematically, eternally. Do we suppose that God would not be good if he did that? We should take care. Also, the fact that Christ seated on the throne says to John, write these things down. It's done. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Here's the promise for those who conquer. Here is the punishment for the cowards, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion, their inheritance will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Is it readily apparent? All of what this means, what this pretends, in every detail? No, it's a mystery. But it can mean exactly what I think it means very easily. And God still be good. And God still be righteous and faithful and true and keep his promises. Picking back up, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprasse, the 11th jacinth, the 12th amethyst, 
and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, here we come to it again. Here we come to a difficulty. How can verses 24 through 27 be true? My friend Alex says, only after purification in the blood of the Lamb and after time spent, In the lake of fire, in hell, can the nations and the kings of the nations come into the city if nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false? My view is that is not correct. That is not a necessary reading of this passage, and that it would be more intuitive for there to be nations and kings of the earth in the new creation. Could this not be describing nations in the new creation, which are derived from the saints who were of every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around the throne? Could there not be kings in the new creation, which are not the wicked kings who've been cast into the lake of fire? They are righteous kings. They are godly kings. We know that civil authority, according to Paul in Romans 13, is a minister of God to reward those who do good, who to, pun- to, to punish those who do evil, to reward those who do good, to punish those who do evil, <clears throat> you might say, ah, well, but what need do we have of kings in the new creation if there's no one who does evil? They've all been thrown into the lake of fire. And I would say there's two parts to the role of that minister of God in the civil sphere. It is not just to punish those who do evil. It's to reward those who do good. So who is to say There won't be kings under Christ in the new creation whose job, whose role is to reward those who do good and to do that kind of justice. Who's to say there won't be nations in the new creation comprised of God's saints? Not that all who have ever lived will be saints in the end, but those who've been thrown into the lake of fire, are there. And that's final. That's the final judgment. That's where they will remain forever. And those who are in Christ, those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, who accepted Christ prior to the Day of Judgment, by God's grace, adopted in as sons of the Most High, heirs of this glorious future, will we say they cannot be Nations, they cannot be distinct nations in the new creation and this passage be fulfilled thereby. I certainly can't say that. I won't say that. I think that's a much more plausible interpretation and an exciting one and a beautiful one. Wouldn't that be heavenly? If eternally you have civil authorities who actually faithfully 
carry out their duty as a minister of God to reward those who do good. Wouldn't that be glorious? Wouldn't that be fantastic? Wouldn't it be glorious and fantastic if the nations that rebel against God, that rage, that plot and conspire how they can overthrow him, how they can make war against his saints, are destroyed and then in their place are new nations. It's a new creation, new nations comprised of God's people. And they're distinct, as distinct as these gemstones, beautiful in their own way, but having particular properties and God being glorified and getting glory for himself in their particular properties, in his getting representation that is varied and diverse in those nations, and yet they live forever and eternally in peace with one another under God, spread out all over the new creation. Wouldn't that be glorious? I think that would be glorious, and I think that's exactly what this passage is talking about. Revelation 14, 6 through 13 Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Take note, just because the angel is carrying an eternal gospel to proclaim to every nation, tribe, language, and people, that does not mean that all are saved. As my friend points out, Evangelion, from which we get the words evangelism or evangelical. Evangelion means to announce the good news. What is the good news? Christ is king. Christ has conquered sin and death. Christ is victorious. Christ will rule and reign forever. That's the good news. But that does not mean, that does not mean, that all are saved. Another angel, a second followed, verse 8, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast at its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And here's my question. How does one get around this? Their torment smoke goes up forever and ever. That seems pretty emphatically to suggest that hell is not temporary. It's an everlasting destination from which there is no escape. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Not that God is unjust. Not that he has failed to keep his promise. Not that Christ is squeamish or his holy angels are any less holy if they observe this and don't turn away from it. Whoever receives the mark of his worship of the beast and its image, will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength, John writes, full strength into the cup of his anger. And yet to say only for a time seems to my way of thinking 
to try and water it down with respect. It seems to water down what is emphatically promised here. Poured full strength, the wine of God's wrath. Moving on, Revelation 15, 1 through 8. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. I think the Christian universalist takes this to mean that God's judgment on the wicked and unbelieving has a conclusion. But let's continue on. Verse 2. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast at its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked up, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now we see here that God lives forever and ever. God lives forever and ever. This is Revelation 15. And what is the phrase used in the previous chapter? Revelation 14, verse 11. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name, God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. We see that the wrath of God has a conclusion or a terminus, but this should not be taken to mean what the Christian universalists believe, that the conclusion of God's wrath is the same as commuting the sentence on those who are wicked and unbelieving. Rather, the judgment and wrath of God being final means that he is satisfied that these positions and placements are fixed and immovable. They are resolved. They hold fast. They are secure. There is no longer any room for reconciliation in the way the saints in Christ are reconciled. There are different ways to be reconciled. It is not all the same. Now, besides these, I want you to consider Matthew 7, 15 through 27. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, the Christian universalist might say here, I presume, that the tree that does not bear good fruit being thrown into the fire of hell is going to come out someday and will then bear good fruit. But I would say instead that this fire being everlasting, we have no reason other than perhaps, dare I say it, wishful thinking, to suppose that good fruit can be born in hell. Verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So I asked my friend, 
why those who would say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, in this case, have not already satisfied what they would be thrown into hell to be persuaded of and cleansed for, if what gets them out of hell is pledging allegiance to King Jesus. It seems as though they are doing it. His answer was that the ones who are saying, Lord, Lord, here apparently don't mean it on that day. But to that, I would ask whether we have reason to suppose they will ever mean it if they don't mean it on that day. And when Jesus says, not everyone. Here's a kind of biggest reason I just can't accept the Christian universalism position. No more emphatic renunciation seems possible than Christ himself saying, not everyone, dot, 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 will enter the kingdom of heaven. How could he be any clearer? Not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty concrete. That's pretty open shut. Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now, to this, the Christian universalist presumably says that the fall of the house built on the sand is not so great as I would say it appears from the passage to be, or that there's a limit on the greatness of the fall. But I would ask what benefit anyone derives from lessening the greatness of the fall of that house when the floods and the winds came. If the warning is given to strongly induce hearers to not be hearers of the word only, but doers also, those who hear the word and do it and build their house on the rock cannot be any more secure by lessening the greatness of the fall of the house built on sand. So what is the practical benefit? What good fruit is born of saying the fall is not so great? Luke 16, 19 through 31, there was a rich man, Jesus says, who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man, named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, father, Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, here we have, to be sure, a passage specifically about hardness of heart 
And the Christian universalist will say that the rich man being chastened in torment is a kind of proof that those in hell will want to get out and go over to the other side. Of course, of course. But notice not just that portion. Notice also what Jesus says Abraham's response to the rich man is about the great chasm. He says that it's fixed between those who await paradise on the one hand and those who await hell, apparently. The express purpose of the chasm is stated. And God, surely, is the one who has fixed it for his purpose, that neither side can cross over to the other for relief. It's not even an option. If those in Abraham's bosom want to cross over to provide relief to those in Hades, they can't. If those in Hades want to cross over to get out of Hades, they can't. God's the one who fixes that. And he's no less good. He's no less good or just or true or holy or faithful, particularly when he tells us that is what he's going to do. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, Jesus says, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Again, the same word, eternal, is used in both instances, describing life for those sheep on the right and punishment for those goats on the left. The same word is used, eternal. Half-jokingly, as an aside, I would say, in some measure of jest, maybe not totally joking, I think this stands as further proof that the political uh, leftists in our day are laying up judgment for themselves. They have proudly identified themselves as being on the left, which is, according to this passage, reserved for eternal judgment, eternal punishment. Uh, 
God bless conservatives, apparently. We're on the right. That's where we're supposed to be. (laughs) In seriousness, though, we need to reckon with the implications of denying the eternality of the punishment for those on the left, that we are simultaneously, thereby undermining confidence in the eternality of the reward for those on the right. The same word is used in both places. Now, I recognize that the original Greek renders literally the phrase unto the age, but that does not mean our understanding in English is corrupted when we say eternality here means endlessness, unless we're going to uniformly, consistently, across the board, deny that eternal life is without end. How can we deny that eternal punishment is without end? It seems to me as though the point of contention here is eternality. Again, God will do what he said he was going to do. We should not take just a portion of what he said he was going to do and then suppose that is hard and set and fixed on the terms that we think. But other things that he said he was going to do can be put in any order whatsoever. Point A to point B versus point B to point A might lead us to different conclusions. And again, some things are mysterious. The secret things belong to God. But what has been made known is for us and our children. I think it's like driving the wrong way down a one-way street or driving northbound in the southbound lane. You might do it for a while, but at a certain point, you're going to run into somebody else. Somebody else is going to have an accident trying to avoid running into you, or you're going to have to turn around because I just don't think this is a tenable position. That there were Christians in the early church that may have subscribed to this view, like Origen, for instance, is beside the point to the fact that they can't be right and also the eternal conscious torment folks be right at the same time. We can't all be right. Now, we might be Christians, and some of us very mistaken, but again, it comes back to the question of cost-benefit. Is there a cost to being wrong? Is there a benefit to being correct in these things? What is the utility And I mean that not like that is the measure, but what is the utility as it's perceived to believing in this kind of Christian universalism? By contrast, if it's wrong, what's the cost? There might be a benefit in this life to telling everybody, hey, you're all going to make it. It's just going to be really unpleasant for a while until you realize you need to pledge allegiance to King Jesus. There might be some benefit to that unless it's false, in which case, what is the cost? That's the big question to my way of thinking. I think one potential very great cost is, unless I'm missing something, which is always a certitude generally, but it's always a possibility in the particulars, unless I'm missing something, if eternal punishment is not really without end for the unrighteous, in hell, it casts doubt on whether eternal life in the new creation is without end. I may not be sold on eternal security as it's often meant. I'm not anti, but I'm 
Not 100% sure what to make of some of the arguments that are made, some of the claims that are made. But probably my biggest concern with this view, Christian universalism, is that it's a kind of eternal insecurity. And what I mean by that is, if it's possible for someone who's thrown into hell to get out at a certain point and get into heaven, is it also possible for someone who is in heaven to lose their salvation even in eternity, even in the afterlife, even in the new creation? Is it possible for them to be thrown into hell? Now, if the scriptures say that anywhere, well, then it it is what it is, whether it makes me comfortable or not. But if I'm uncomfortable and I'm also not seeing the hermeneutic resolves these apparent contradictions with the least difficulty in favor of the universalist position, then I think to myself, I would rather not be uncomfortable to no purpose, to no end. I also would rather not lose a sense of urgency with regards to proclaiming the good news. The good news for those who are in Christ is very, very good news. No less, but only all the more, if the judgment is without end. What does Revelation say? Revelation chapter 15. God, who lives forever and ever. And what does Revelation 14 say? The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Now that might make some uncomfortable, but it might make them uncomfortable to a good end. And if it's true, that's the main thing. That's the important thing. Not first and foremost, does it make us comfortable or uncomfortable? But is it true? Can it be true that God lives forever and ever, and yet one chapter next door, the smoke of the torment of those who worshipped the beast and took its mark means something different, some things to ponder. That's all the time I've got for this episode. More could be said, more should be said in future. I'd like to, now that I've started digging in, to who Origen was and the story of his life or what is said about him through tradition, what's been passed down through Eusebius and others. I should like to do an episode on him, but we'll have to save more thoughts on this business of Christian universalism for the future. Let me know what you think. If I missed something, misconstrued something, misunderstood, misrepresented something, please, please, please reach out. I should like to be as correct as possible, as soon as possible, as often as possible, to the greatest extent possible. It means being willing to be corrected, if I'm mistaken. But, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.